We'll hear argument now in number 02196, the National Park Hospitality Association versus the Department of the Interior. Mr. Geller. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. This case concerns the applicability of the Contract Disputes Act to contracts between the National Park Service and the private concessioners who contract to provide visitor services and to operate and maintain facilities in more than 100 of our national parks. Mr. Geller, I have a couple of preliminary questions. Uh, first of all, this is a facial challenge made by the National Park Hospitality Association, I take it. How is the claim ripe for adjudication? Has the association been injured, actually? There's no case pending. Your Honor, uh, to begin with, let me say that as to this facial challenge point, this, uh, this was an argument that was never made below. It was not made in the district court. It was not made in the Court of Appeals. It was not made in the uh, opposition to certiorari. Is it one that we're precluded from concerning ourselves with? Well, I'm not sure it's a jurisdictional issue, so it, it may well be waived. But let me also say quickly that I think this whole — there was an — I think that — I think the ripeness issue — Yes, I was going to address — whether or not it's a facial challenge. Right. I was going to address ripeness separately, Justice Scalia. In terms of this facial as applied, this is an APA challenge to a regulation. I'm not aware that the Court has really used this facial as applied nomenclature in that — in that uh, context. After all, under the APA, the question is whether an ar a regulation — is arbitrary or capricious or contrary to law. Here we have a regulation that categorically states no NPS, con no National Park Service concession contracts are subject to the CDA. If there are, there are in fact, some uh, co such contracts that are subject to the uh, CDA, as we believe there are, then that regulation is arbitrary and capricious. The agency should have to go back and draft a more refined regulation. Is that, is that the standard for ripeness, whether the uh, regulation is arbitrary? No, no, no. I'm, Why is like, this any different? You, you contend that the agency has no authority to speak authoritatively on this, on this issue anyway. And therefore, this regulation, as I understand your, your position, is, is of no more effect than the agency's announcement of what its litigating position not, will be. Not Quite, Justice Scalia. I'm, right. trying to dem I'm trying to distinguish the facial as applied point that Justice O'Connor raised from the ripeness question, which I'll get to in just a minute. Uh, this is not a, a facial. For there was an as applied challenge to begin with made in the district court. Uh, this is not a facial challenge in the sense that we're asking the court to strike down the regulation based on hypotheticals or on factual situations that may never arise. We know what these concessions contracts look like. The NPS has issued standard concessions contracts. It seems to us rather easy to determine whether the services that are called for in those contracts uh, bring the contracts within the, within the CDA. So I don't think there's anything to this well, facial Presumably point. there are many different <clears throat> kinds of concession contracts. Some might be covered, some might not. Well, I don't think so, Justice O'Connor, because there are standard concessions contracts. They're in the record. And it's clear that they call for certain types of services, and we think it's clear that the court, as the two lower courts did, can determine whether those contracts call for the uh, procurement of services that would bring them within the uh, CDA or call for the uh, repair maintenance of real property. How many, now, what are there, ten standard concession contracts? There are, I think, three. Three? And they all call for the same types of services at national parks. There are, there are copies in the, in the record. Now, in terms of your ripeness argument, uh, Justice Scalia, once again, the, the government never made any suggestion that this case was not ripe below. The reason it's not unripe is that 
the standard concession contracts and the contracts that, in fact, the NPS is putting out for bid incorporate within them the statement that these contracts are not subject to the CDA. The NPHA and its members need to know now, in terms of deciding whether to bid on certain contracts, what their rights are under those contracts. But and how, do, how does it hurt you to, in the present posture, as I understand it, the contracts, whatever it's called, the ICBA, decides these cases in your favor? So in the, in the setting of a concrete dispute, contracting officer rules against one of the concessionaires. The concessionaires goes to that board if they want to, and the board will rule, at least on the jurisdictional point, that, that the Contracts Dispute Act does apply. So how are you hurting? We are harmed, Justice Ginsburg, because it is important for the concessionaires to know at the time that they are deciding whether to bid on a contract and at the time they are deciding how much to bid on a contract, what their rights are under that contract. It's a pre-bid, it's a solicitation in which That would be the same case if the agency simply announced our litigating position in these contracts is going to be that they are not covered by the Contract Disputes Act. Yes, but the, You'd be in exactly the same position. And we would, would be you have the ability to We would still? be challenged because it is a provision of these contracts, Your Honor, that incorporates the regulation that states that they are not subject to the CDA. So this is a proper challenge to the solicitation as including an illegal term. The contracts on their face, by incorporating this regulation, say you have no rights under the CDA. It seems to us, and we think the law is clear, although the government never made this challenge, so it's not been briefed, that the concessioners have a right to know at the outset in deciding whether or not to bid whether the government is right in asserting that they have no rights under the CDA. Well, if it's an invalid provision, could the uh, contracting party simply contract and then go into court later on and say, well, this clause is unenforceable? Well, I don't know, Justice Kennedy. You would be signing a contract that agrees to the provision in the contract that says that you have no rights enforceable under the CDA. But beyond that, the government has taken the position you have no rights enforceable under the CDA, so it's not clear how you would follow through on your rights under that. Well, if, but if, you're, if you're right, Mr. Geller, I suppose your client could go into uh, court and ask for a declaratory judgment, even though there's nothing in the contract saying we want to find out which provision of, uh, to review applies to us. But this is a pre-enforcement challenge to a regulation that that's, that's, that's the problem. In the, in the case that I put, we, I don't think you could get declaratory relief until you've alleged that there was going to be a dispute. You can say, you know, but I, there is I a, might but, have an argument down the line, and I want to know where I want to go. That but, seems but to Justice me Kennedy, the, the, speculative. I, I just don't see the harm to your client in, in waiting. The harm, Your Honor, is in not knowing at the time you're being asked to bid on contracts what your rights are under those contracts. It's so like it, any it, other provisions. Is it established? I mean, my, my guess is it is. But, but if the government, the Defense Department, any other department, presents uh, a private individual with a contract with 14 t- conditions, and one of those conditions, in the view of the private person, is unlawful, not authorized by statute, contrary to statute, that that person, before bidding on the contract, can go to court and say, I would uh, like this set aside uh, as unlawful. I think that there, there is. Is there authority on I that? Think there, that is there is authority is, on that. I guess that's the answer. Yes, I think right. there is authority under, under, the, under the Tucker Act, which is one of the provisions of, that we cited in the complaint, that allows you to bring 
challenges to bid solicitations on the ground that And these regulations are incorporated into the contract. And these these are absolutely regulations are incorporated into the contract. What is the authority, Mr. Geller? I think it's Section 1491. It it is one of the provisions that we relied on in the in the complaint in this case to bring this challenge. And I might say to the court, is there any uh, case that supports? Uh, yes, there are, but I was about to say, Mr. Chief Justice, that this, the, the government has never challenged ripeness, and that's not, suggest, is not to suggest that it's not something that this Court can consider, but I think it's unfair to decide that issue on the ba- when it hasn't been fully briefed by the parties. It's never been challenged at any time in this case. Unless, it forces, unless the failure to consider it forces us to decide a case on, on facts that we find, you know, rather amorphous. But they're not amorphous, Justice Scalia, because — To make it easy for us to decide the case. I'm not suggesting the Court doesn't have the authority to do it. I'm suggesting the issue has not been briefed, that we did present the Tucker Act as a basis for jurisdiction in the Court. And is the, the issue before us — Excuse me? Well, is the issue before us whether the three contracts that are in the record are procurement contracts within the meaning of the statute? Yes. And that's right because yes. you have uh, members of your association who are considering bidding on contracts that contain — that those three contracts, which are universal — and uh, they don't want to do it uh, if, or may or may not want to, uh, if uh, that, that uh, term is lawful. But they might do it if it's unlawful. That's precisely, that's and, and precisely can, right. May I ask one other, other question? Uh, the, the Court of Appeals uh, addressed this part of, of the case under its Roman three, uh, Roman three, I think, the Contract Disputes Act. Uh, did the Contract Disputes Act um, issue, the question, have anything to do with the other argument about whether or not these concessions are renewed? In other words, if, it, if it's not a — these are just freestanding yes. issues yes. unrelated. Yes. All right, thank you. Yes, they are. Mr. Geller, one other thing that I'm curious about. Why does it matter? Why do you care whether it's it, covered by the CDA? What's at stake here that's in the real world? It's a very important question, Justice O'Connor. What is at stake are the rights, the, 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 the rights, the substantive and the procedural rights that are available to, to, to a government contractor if it, enge- it gets into a dispute with the, with the contracting agency? Now, under the CDA, there are very important procedural and substantive rights that are available that would not be available under other law. And that's like that what? Was, I mean, what's, for example, what's at stake? What's at stake principally is, first of all, an administrative mechanism, which is these boards of contract appeals, that would, are available to decide these matters expeditiously and particularly with small claims without as having to go to, to court. What? As opposed to having to go to court. As opposed to having to go to the Court of Federal Claims where it's not even clear what the standard of review would be. The standard of review under the CDA is de novo. So that's a very important substantive and procedural right. In addition, de, de, the right de novo for who? It, for the, the contract board or for the court if you go both. You, after the contracting officer decides an issue adversely to the contractor under the CDA, the uh, contractor has the choice either to go to the Board of Contract Appeals or to file a lawsuit in the Court of Federal Claims. In either event, the review is de novo. And if he chooses the contract board, then the, the next step, the court step, will be? be the Federal Circuit. To direct you to the circuit. You wouldn't right. go to the? Right. And that wouldn't be de novo, I take it. No, it wouldn't be de novo. That would be the main thing that I understood it was that you're trying to get out of the agency appeals. You don't want to have to go through the agency. This gets you right into court after the contracting officer. Am I right about that? No, that's not right, Justice uh, Breyer. Actually, uh, what we want to be able to do 
is to avoid having to follow whatever procedures the agency sets up in its contract for, for seeking review if there's a dispute. We but want why the- can't you do that? That's what you've been doing all along. That's why you, get, you have the several decisions of the IBCA. Every time you go to the IBCA, they say yes. Yes, but the Interior Department and the NPS has not acceded to those decisions and has issued a regulation. But then isn't, isn't the appropriate thing to go? You go to the IBCA if the government wants to challenge the jurisdiction that they will exercise, the resolution that they make, then it's up to the government. But you can go to the IBCA. They have been welcoming well, those were all prior to the government's issuance of the regulation in this case, a regulation that's now been upheld by the D.C. Circuit. Well, but you, so, you, you, you say the government's issuance of a regulation. The yes. National Park Service. Yes, yes. Well, that's what we're dealing with. There's some dispute as to whether they even have the authority to issue it. Uh, they don't, in fact, administer the CDA, Your Honor, so we don't think this is a regulation that's entitled to any deference. Nonetheless, well, they, it's they seem to agree with you <clears throat> at this point. I mean, they've, they've agreed uh, in their terms that it's not a legislative regulation in that right. footnote 5 or 6, right. whatever it is. What does that do to, to our jurisdiction? I mean, is, is, are, are you now both, in effect, claiming that this so-called regulation is nothing but the government's statement of the intention to take a position well, when the, and if the time comes? Our view is that this is a regulation that represents the views of the NPS that's not entitled to any deference because it's not a statute that they administer. The government would have to give you its view of how much deference is entitled. Well, how do you, read, this the, is still how do you read their concession in the footnote? Because apparently, I, I take that, it that is new, by the way. I find that correct? footnote very confusing. So you're, you're really challenging not the, not the, uh, not the uh, ineffective regulation, but rather the inclusion of what the regulation We're says in the contract? Both. That- We're challenging both. We brought an APA challenge to the regulation as well as a Tucker Act challenge, a pre-bid solicitation challenge to the inclusion of these, this, this illegal term in the, uh, in the contract. But isn't it the case that unless you have an, an APA issue, there's nothing else that you can litigate at this point. I mean, if the only thing that you have to complain about is that they want to put a term in a contract that you think they shouldn't be putting in, it's up to you to decide whether you want to contract on those terms. No, because I think under the law we're entitled to challenge that solicitation as illegal. We have to bid on these contracts. We're entitled to know. No, but at this stage of the game, they're not claiming that their regulation is, is what they call a legislative regulation. They are claiming that that is the position that they're going to take and that it is entitled to some level of well, deference. That footnote clearly says that it is entitled to some level of deference. This is clearly the position, and it's been upheld by the D.C. Circuit. There's no reason to suggest they're not going to adamantly enforce their, their but views. Then, but if the case isn't ripe and we should so hold, I assume the appropriate thing to do would be to vacate the D.C. Circuit's decision to that extent. So yes. then you be, or what you would be have is the government has told you in advance what its litigating position would be, and it has no more meaning than uh, a statement of what the government's but it position is, is with no, but no. Justice Ginsburg, as I said, there's still this provision in all the contracts. The government would still be asking This government would still be asking us to accede to a position and sign a contract that contains a term which we believe is illegal that says well, we have no rights under well, the CDA. What, what if the government contract had a term that simply said, you know, there would be damages for delay, uh, double damages depending on the amount of delay? And you say, well, I, we don't think the government's authorized to put that in a contract. Could you challenge yes. that? Yes, I believe so, Mr. Chief Justice. There is a very large body of government contracting law. It's not in the briefs because it wasn't raised, well, allowing, it, pre, allowing these sorts of challenges to illegal terms and contracts. But where is the law? I mean, is it in the cases of this court? 
Well, obviously, these these cases are generally litigated in the in the in the court of federal claims and in the district. Is, there, is that where the law is? In the court yes. Of federal claims? Well, there are probably some appellate decisions as well, but the law is fairly well settled in this area. And as I say, the government has never challenged the ripeness of the CDA. Mr. Gallo, you say you say it's settled, and I, please correct me if I'm wrong. If, if Abbott Laboratories has been overtaken, but my notion was that in order to have a pre-enforcement challenge you had to have a pretty strong claim that you are hurting now, as they were, if they didn't — if they spent all that money? Yes. But Abbott Laboratories is, is obviously an APA case. I think we could meet that standard because we need to know now whether we should bid on these contracts. But there's a separate body of law involving solicitations for government contracts, is what I'm saying to the Court. And does that get you — That's your stronger card. Yes. And does that give you an APA cause of action? Well, we brought both an APA cause of action and a challenge under the, under, the, uh, under the Tucker Act. And, you know, we would maintain that we can challenge this regulation, and in addition, we can challenge this bid solicitation. The two really overlap because the regulation is incorporated into the contract. Is there any finding in the district court that uh, the inclusion of this provision was critical as to whether or not you'd go ahead with the contract? There was no I, I, such. I, I, there, there was I no find such. it a little hard. It's, it's, if it's a really good contract, you, I, I suppose, uh, <laughs> intend to comply with it, and you don't think there's going to be any litigation well, not, at all. There was there was no finding by the district court, Your Honor, because it was not there was no challenge to the ripeness by the government. But the co- the complaint, as I recall, did make that allegation. The complaint made the allegation that the con- contractors needed to know whether these contracts were covered by the CDA. Well, when you say it make the further allegation that if it did, if it were not. Uh, that if it were, were uh, not covered, it would not in, engage in the negotiations at all? I specifically uh, recall it's that a commercial matter, it's hard for me to see that if there's an advantageous contract that you're well, but not going to execute it. question of how advantageous. one form of remedy or the other in the event of a But break. it's not binary, Justice Kenny. Maybe you would still enter into the contract negotiations. It's one factor in deciding how much you'll bid on the contract. Mr. Kelly, mm-hmm. when you say these contracts, you keep yeah. referring to these contracts. <clears throat> they're, they're, actually, you're talking about three contract forms. You're, you're, you're not discussing any particular well, there bid solicitation. You, you have no well, particular bid solicitation. No, well, that's not okay. precisely true, Justice Scalia, because there were bid solicitations. In the district court, there were, there were lawsuits brought both by the National Park Hospitality Association on behalf of its members, as well as, as lawsuits brought by several concessioners challenging specific bid solicitations as to them. And, uh, and, and therefore, uh, there was both facial and, as applied, in effect, challenges to the uh, to the CDA point in the in the. What they say then is the government, as far as I understand it, the basic point is that this is not a procurement contract, regardless of who's entitled to what deference. And the reason that it isn't is because we are not buying anything, and that isn't a technical point; that is an important point. Because you and us, you the private and we the government, are both in the business of selling things to the government, we need somewhat more control over the interpretation of these contracts. And that's why the number of procedures you have to go through in the Parks Department is greater. And all the things that you don't like about it are things we do like about it. Namely, we get a little bit added control. But that's why, legitimately, these are not procurement contracts. Now, your point in response to roughly well, that, or I'm just trying to get you to the merits. So I yes, thought. I'd like to turn to the <laughs> merits. Thank you, Justice Breyer. Can I, I'd like to begin by saying it's purely a matter of statutory 
construction. And we think that the statute on its face unambiguously answers the question before the Court. And I think it would be helpful if the Court could look at Section 3A of the Contract Disputes Act, which which appears in many places, including page 1 of the blue brief, because you'll see that Section 3A states that unless specifically excluded therein, the CDA applies to, quote, any express or implied contract entered into by an executive agency for, among other things, the procurement of services or the procurement of construction, repair, or maintenance of the The reason that doesn't help you is because the question is what's procurement. Well, I'm not sure that that's necessarily the question, but let me address it this way, Your Honor. The National Park Service does not contend that its concessions contracts are not contracts within the meaning of the CDA. It doesn't contend that it's not an executive agency. And uh, the NPS doesn't contend that any provision of the CDA or, for that matter, any other federal statute specifically excludes these contracts from the, from the CDA. And, Justice Breyer, the NPS really doesn't even take issue with the fact that these concessions contracts procure services and procure the construction, repair, and maintenance of real property. In other words, every single statutory requirement on the face of the statute would seem to be satisfied. I thought they did challenge that these are — that it's procurement. They do not challenge, Your Honor, that, that, that these contracts procure services. And in the in this sense of procurement is used in government contracts? Well, I think that's the issue in the case. The government claims — That's the issue in the case. The government, I tried and to, I would like to turn to that now, because the government claims that these contracts are not within the protection of the CDA. And why? Its entire argument amounts to the following. The government says that the word procurement and the phrase procurement contract, we are told, have a universally understood and well-settled meaning. And they tell us that to qualify as a procurement contract, the government says an acquisition must be for the direct use and benefit of the government, and it must be paid for with what the government calls government funds. Now, the first thing to be said, Justice Breyer, about the government's argument is that it is a complete invention. It is a complete invention. No federal statute defines the word procurement or the word procurement contract to include the two requirements that the government tells us are essential. In fact, the Office of Federal Procurement Policy Act, the government cites lots well, and lots of — Well, the word procurement has a natural meaning. If, if, they, if they have a concessionaire to come and sell balloons on the 4th of July, they don't say they've procured some balloons. They've, they've, they've they, arranged for some balloons. Well, you say arranged. You could say they've procured having someone sell balloons on the 4th of July. The, the, the Office of Federal Procurement no, that, Policy no, Act — that's, 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 that's not the usual meaning of, of, of procure, I, I should but think. The wor- but there is no statute that — the Office of Federal Procurement Policy Act, which is a companion statute to the CDA, actually has a definition of the word procurement. You wouldn't know it from reading the government's brief because it doesn't refer to that, but it contains a definition of the word procurement that does not contain either of the two requirements that the government tells us are essential to a government procurement. No court has ever construed the word procurement to include the two requirements that the government tells us are clearly established and well settled by federal procurement. I'm looking at page 19 of the government's brief, and they, they define procurement. They're taking it from the, um, the, the Federal Acquisition Regulations to say, acquiring by contract with appropriated funds, supplies or services by and for the use of the Federal Government. Yes. So that, that's not a statute, but let me address that. Justice Ginsburg. First of all, appropriated funds. It is clear, and the government does not challenge the fact, that the CDA applies to contracts even when appropriated funds are not used. That's clear on the face of the CDA. So the government is forced to come come up with this new phrase, government funds, which has, as far as we can tell, no basis at all in any 
prior statute or any federal procurement law. And the but fact it does have a basis, in just what Justice Ginsburg was quoting, 48 CFR 2.101. So they say it's not without foundation in the law. What, what that's from is, I take it, it's a memo that, or a, a policy issued jointly by the Secretary of Defense, the Administrator of General Services, and the NAS Administrator. So when they have a reg like that, I, I think that it's not so that it isn't somewhere in federal law. It's right there. Now, there's some other things there. But that you say are not necessarily part of procurement. But that fact that there are other things that overstate it doesn't mean this does. But, Your Honor, there are many other stat The government principally relies on other statutes that have, the have certain provisions like the ones they would like to in introduce into the CDA in them. But I think it's quite significant that Congress didn't put these provisions in the CDA. What about you put one in, in the CD, uh, <coughs> CDA, uh, 41 U.S.C. Section 612C. It's discussed at the bottom of page 18 and the top of page 19 of, uh, of the government's brief. And what it says is that uh, the monetary awards in favor of a contractor uh, will be paid out of the judgment fund and in turn provides for the reimbursement to the judgment fund, quote, by the agency whose appropriations were used for the contract. Which Just, would suggest that in all I don't cases think it where does not, it doesn't suggest that at all, Justice Scalia. First of all, they only quote that incompletely. It also yeah, said. So tell me why. I, I, I in, the, in our reply brief, I don't see how the, the in our reply brief it says by such appropriation by, by the appropriation of that agency or such other appropriations as the agency has to get. Now, the NPS is a but the department it clearly envisions appropriations, whether they have it already or but they the, the CDA on its face and the government concedes this applies to contracts that don't involve appropriated oh, fund agents. Well, we'll ask the government about that. That's a, that's a, that's a much more serious point. Yes, I think it's clear. There's no there's no doubt that the CDA applies to any contract, whether or not it's an appropriated fund agency or not. Let me just say that, in addition to being, I think, totally unsupported as a matter of law. The limitations that the NPS asked this Court to read into the CDA would be completely unworkable as a matter of practice. I think we've already talked about the government funds point, which is, I think, a phrase that they have dreamt up as no basis in law, unlike appropriated funds, which is not the case of the CDA. But I think it's also the case that this use or benefit to the government notion is completely unworkable. If, for example, the NPS were to go out and procure water coolers for use in the Department of Interior building, the NPS would concede that those would be within the Contract Disputes Act because they're, they're for the use and benefit of the government. If the government were to go out and procure the same water coolers for use on the mall during the 4th of July, the, court, the, the NPS would say, that, well, that's not for the use or benefit of the government. I don't know how you could decide what is for the use or benefit of the government. When you, if the government, uh, if the NPS issues a contract to build a, uh, the World War II memorial on the mall, which is now, being, is now happening, is that for the use of the public or is it used for the government? We don't think this is a defensible position, and it certainly finds no basis in the CDA. We think it's a, a, an irrational reading of the Act that has no support in the language or the legislative history or the purpose of the statute. And I want to say that even if there was a use or benefit to the government uh, limitation in the CDA, we think it would clear the, these contracts would still clearly satisfy it because these concessions contracts are being let in part to help the Department of Interior and the NPS fulfill its statutory mission. 
if these concessioners were not there operating these restaurants or guest facilities, the NPS would have to operate them himself in order to satisfy its stat- the statutory requirement that they provide for the use and enjoyment of the national parks. So we don't think it's possible to say that these concession contracts, the, that the NPS is completely indifferent to these concession contracts. They're clearly for the use and benefit not only of the public but also of the NPS. Uh, if the Court has no further questions, I'd like to reserve the balance of my time. Very well, Mr. Geller. Mr. Elwood, we'll hear from you. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. Will you tell us why the government doesn't want the CDA applicable here? I mean, what's, what's at stake for the government in not applying it? Justice, Justice O'Connor, the reason why the government doesn't want this applicable here is that the Contract Dispute Act was passed to address specific shortcomings in the remedial scheme that was available for procurement contracts. And because it was designed specifically for those purposes, it has terms that we don't think are appropriate in this context. For example — But that just doesn't tell me, as a practical matter, why the government doesn't want it applicable here. For example, the prejudgment interest remedy. We don't want to pay prejudgment interest. Right. And we don't think it's appropriate. Congress provided prejudgment interest in the procurement contracts context because procurement contractors would be required to perform under the contract even during the pendency of a dispute when they weren't being paid. And it was because of that unique position where they were both being required to make outlays without getting any income that Congress okay, thought so at bottom, that's it, the prejudgment interest feature. I, I think that, and because uh, there are other things as well. For example, the purpose of the CDA, one of the purposes of the CDA was to cut through all of these re- requirements that you exhaust administrative remedies, but those simply aren't present in the concessions context. Traditionally, concessioners have had a direct right of access to courts, and um, Congress has never indicated that they thought the uh, remedial scheme was inadequate for concessioners. And in- oh, is, this, is this claim right? And why didn't you ever talk about it below? What's going on? It's such, it comes in such an odd posture. What is the government's view on that? The, the reason why we did not raise this, why we did not raise this, is because we did not raise it below. And as you can tell from the pleadings, is because the CDA was kind of a sideshow below. It was a relatively small issue, and it was just not the focus of the proceedings, as you can tell by the opinion. But I think that the court has raised valid concerns about the ripeness in this sense. The Court has traditionally said uh, in a pre-enforcement challenge to a regulation uh, that a claim is ripe if it affects primary conduct, uh, so, that, uh, so that if they don't comply, they might be held liable. That's the uh, Ab- Abbott Labs line of cases. And here, this doesn't affect primary conduct. It, pre- it, pre- it predominantly just says whether or not which form you're going to have a remedy in. Uh, I, I, so I would agree. Is, uh, 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 what about the, the reply? I came in thinking ripeness was a problem. Then. Uh, your uh, brother on the other side, I gave to me what was a very convincing answer. What's wrong with that answer? Uh, and that is, the thing is, because it predominantly just determines which form you have, uh, which form you bring your claim in, I don't no, know how affect, that would affect. Right, but what they're saying is that where the government offers general contracts to the industry, and there is a term in e- all of those contracts which, in the view of the industry, is unlawful, they ha- it's right for them to challenge that. Now, what I'm afraid here would be that we, or you, or somebody, uh, in deciding whether that's uh, an incorrect argument, would upset uh, uh, what could be, I have no idea if it is, a practice of contractors objecting to terms in offered contracts as contrary to law. So are you saying now that that is not right Are you saying that a contractor who comes in to a court 
and objects to a term in a proposed contract as contrary to law does not have a claim because it is not right. Is that the government's position? No, I don't think that would be our position. If no, it I think their probably primary... we'd at least want to brief it. Right. I think if it affects their primary conduct, if it affects what their obligations would be under the contract, I think that that claim would be right for pre-enforcement review. But where it simply determines which form they'll bring the claim in, I don't think it would be covered. They said it's the first that's at issue here. Now, is it not because that you heard what he said? So. That, that's correct. But I think uh, simply because it determines which form you bring your claim in, I don't think it would be covered. If I recall so correctly. So there, there's a dispute between the two sides on what the case law says as to whether, and it isn't even a general, a general attack upon the form of the, of, upon a form contract, but as we understand from petitioners, there were particular bids outstanding that were challenged because, because of a term in them that, that was claimed to be unlawful. And it is your position that you cannot challenge a particular bid because of an unlawful term unless that unlawful term affects your primary conduct. No, if it affects something other, I think, than the form in which it's brought. I mean, if it affects what you think your obligations will be, if it, if it affects the price that you think you should pay uh, or that you should bid on a contract. Well, it, it does on your analysis. Does it? I mean, you said one of the things that's important is prejudgment interest. So I, I suppose their liability under the contract is going to be affected by, by the correctness of the reg. I don't think their liability — Their primary conduct won't be, but their potential liability, if there is a contract dispute, would be. Um, Your Honor, I confess that I am not sure if the government gets prejudgment interest under the CDA or not. But if it were if it, if it simply ran to the contractors, I think that uh, the, the prospect of interest on a claim that has not even arisen yet uh, seems a little vague. Why the outside I mean, they, they have to make a bid. They have accountants. These are big companies. They calculate everything down to the finest penny, and 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 they say, you know, we take into account whether we're going to get prejudgment interest, which we if we have a dispute. And by the way, we have one dispute every three hours. And so it's a lot of money to us. And we will bid $42.36 less if we're not getting the uh, whatever. All right? So they work it all out. They have accountants who do it. And so if that's so, of course, if it isn't so, it's a different story. But they've said something like that, so. I think it would, it would turn on — in that case, I just don't think that in advance you can say with enough sort of uh, concreteness and specificity that you know how much a particular claim, the, the as-yet — Unfiled, unrealized contract claims would be yes, worth. No, it isn't. It really isn't a waiver of prejudgment interest comparable to a waiver of punitive damages, for example, which, if you insist on it, would affect the, the amount one would bid for a contract. Uh, it, I don't understand why you say it's worth nothing. I mean, I mean nothing, if the government's willing to fight about it here and insist and put it in every contract. It must be of value to the government. What is actually just if I could clarify this? What is put into the contract is just a general term that applicable law will apply, and because applicable law includes all regulations. It is incorporated that way. It doesn't specifically include a CDA waiver or anything of that sort. So the contract itself does not specify that the CDA does not apply? No, it just says applicable law governs a contract. Um, but I, I think it's uh, just a matter it, of — Is it your view, since you said your, your interpretation now of the, the position that the Park Service is taking, that it, that it doesn't constitute law? How can it constitute law? First of all, the contract dispute — Act is not within the Park Service bailiwick. It isn't, as you concede, it isn't the, doesn't administer this act. So does that regulation constitute any kind of law? 
I think that that's a valid concern because our position is that this is basically just an interpretive rule announcing uh, the position that the Park Service will take and the, park, the position that the Park Service employees will take in administering. So you, say, you, you claim that this provision is not incorporated in the contract. Is that the position the government's taking? I think, honestly, Justice Scalia, I think it's just it's a, it's a new proposition for me. And I think that uh, a good argument could be made that it is not included because it, it really just represents the position of the National Park Service. Right. Even uh, leaving aside the question of inclusion, what, is you, what do you understand your difference to be from the petitioners with respect to the status of the regulation itself? Is there any difference at all? I don't know that there is a, a difference with respect to uh, the petitioner's view. It's an interpretive rule that the Park Service has. Have we got any jurisdiction left? Uh, I, I believe so because it is the announced position. It's not just a policy statement. It is basically a directive to the. No, but what's the difference between a policy statement and an announced position? The, the point at which each one is going to have practical effect is the point at which there is a claimed breach and an argument, uh, if there is one, over what the remedial process is. Yes, but I think that the only difference would be that poli the, the principal difference would be policy statements uh, are more of, involve more variance and that they say, as a general policy, we will do this, whereas uh, the, as an interpretive rule, it just says that we do not believe that concession contracts are what, what, procurement contracts. What is the position of the government? Now, I know this is hitting you cold, but I think it would be helpful. Position one, we have not thought of ripeness before, and the case has been argued and submitted on the assumption that, for example, the bidding would be affected by this term which is incorporated into the contract. That's been the assumption, and we see no reason to depart from it. It's not jurisdictional, so decide the issue we brief. That's position one. Position two, we haven't thought of ripeness before, but now that we think about it, we think it's quite a serious problem, and we're not certain what the, what the, what the issue is in uh, ordinary contracts, and we're not certain whether it's incorporated. Uh, uh, so we think you should say that this case is not right. Now, you take position one, which will mean we probably perhaps could go to decide the issue for which it was granted, or do you take position two, which means you see ripeness as a big problem here that we ought to look at further? Well, uh, Justice Breyer, it's clearly been a, a position of the court that it is not bound by the failure of the parties to raise it. That's in uh, Reno versus Catholic Social Services, and of course you can raise it. I'm asking you what the law is exactly. I'm asking you what's the government's position. I, I think our position would be. I mean, we f we filed a brief in opposition, and I think that uh, you know if, if we can win on ripeness grounds, that's great too. You wouldn't necessarily. <laughs> you wouldn't necessarily win. I mean, I I don't right. know if you. Right. Would we win. might lose the uh, judgment of the D.C. Circuit as well, but. You, you would have to. If it's not ripe, we'd have to vacate it to that extent. But this, in the D.C. Circuit. Put you back circuit, to square one. No position. In the D.C. Circuit, this was a giant, one of those typical uh, wholesale attacks on many, many regulations. Um, on, the whole, on the whole rulemaking. Is that correct? That's correct. And this was just a tiny, tiny piece of a long, long opinion. That's correct, Your Honor. Treating so maybe just nobody noticed. It seems unfair to pick it apart this way. Just a little part of a major opinion. Well, I think that it, it just points out the fact that, I mean, they, they had an awful lot on their plate, and uh, it, it perhaps eluded them for that reason. Now, the as-applied facial, was that as-applied challenges, did those center 
on this issue, or did they relate to the uh, to another issue? They related to other claims, Justice Ginsburg. Uh, Zantara has characterized their claim as an as-applied claim, uh, although they're not asking for an as-applied review in this case. But if you look at their their complaint, uh, their complaint involved their intention to bid on as yet unreleased uh, prospectus. And so, in that sense, I don't think that is an as-applied change for two, for two reasons. Not only is there no contract dispute, but at the time at the complaint was filed, there was no contract. So we think that it would be a, a facial challenge. Mr. Elwood, if I can assist you in getting the merits here. Uh, is, it, is it the case, as the petitioners contend, that the government concedes that not all Contracts covered by the CDA are contracts in which um, appropriated funds are used. That's correct. To the extent that it covers non-appropriated fund instrumentalities, it covers uh, contracts that would involve the expenditure of non-appropriated funds. Those are, however, government funds, funds of government entities known as non-appropriated fund instrumentalities. Once you slip off from appropriated into into government funds, you you don't have any statutory text you can appeal to. As, as separating out the CDA from, uh, uh, fr- from your Park Service uh, concessions. I, I don't agree, Justice Scalia. Both the um, — well, to begin with, um, just in terms of giving an indication of what the commonly accepted meaning of the term was at the time, the Commission on Government Procurement Reform, uh, which was the uh, — which was the <coughs> impetus for all of these reforms, defined procurement as purchase of product or service for federal use, which incorporates both a, a notion of expenditure and federal use. And both the, the 1969 yeah, but Act — federal use, of course, <laughs> it is of use to the Park Service to have facilities available to the public. So that doesn't really answer the question. The, parks, the Park Service wants parks available to the public with services in them restrooms and buildings and restaurants and so forth, doesn't it? So in a sense, it is for the use of the Park Service and the government as well as for the public. It is for the use — well, it is not for the direct use of the National Park Service, and that is where the Federal Grant and Cooperative Agreement comes in. Eight months before passage of the CDA, Congress uh, explained its understanding of what different types of instruments would be used for, and explained in that that a procurement contract would be an instrument whose principal purpose is the uh, acquisition by purchase, lease, or barter of goods or services for the direct use and benefit of the government. Well, it doesn't really say that, and the language in the CDA is broad, and presumably this was an act that was presumed to have broad application. It was presumed to have broad application among procurement contracts. There's no indication that they did not intend the word procurement to have the ordinary meaning that it does in that sense. As indicated in the Commission on Government Procurement Reform and the way it was used there, as indicated in the 1969 Act creating the Commission and the OFPP Act, where the simple use word procurement was understood. Was was there ever any amendment offered in Congress to um, make clear that it didn't apply to concession contracts? There was no — no. There was no indication in the entire legislative history that the that concessions came up. And in 1,200 pages of reports on both procurement and non-appropriate fund procurement, there was not a single mention of uh, — And how long at, — at, at any point did the CDA — was it applied or followed with any concession contracts? Or is this something that has arisen recently? Was it used at one point? Um, 
There are a number of uh, Armed Service Board of Contract Appeals that assume CDA jurisdiction, and the Board of Contract Appeals of the Department of the Interior started using it in 1989. But I'm not familiar with usage uh, prior These to that. For what concessions? PS, PX concessions, for example? Yes, Justice Well, Steve. why isn't that? I mean, because I, I, I was about to ask that question. Because I thought you're drawing the distinction between a concession to provide food and hot dogs and um, amusement to, uh, uh, to visitors to the park, which you say is not covered by the CDA, and, it seems to me, a contract to provide food and hot dogs and, I don't know, maybe amusement, I don't know what they have at PXs, to members of the armed forces. Why isn't at least the latter, although it's a concession contract, why isn't that clearly for the benefit of the government, even, even in the narrow sense in which you use that term? No, Justice Scalia, we would, be, we would agree that that is for the benefit of the government. It's, it doesn't involve the expenditure of government funds, but it's for the benefit of the government, and for this reason. So that would be covered by the CDA? I, I don't believe it necessarily would, because it doesn't involve the expenditure of government funds. It's still private contractors coming in and, being, and paying the government for the opportunity to do that. Uh, but as far as the benefit goes, I think agencies have a direct interest in providing benefits to their employees, and especially in the PX example, because PXs, for example, are – uh, basically a fringe benefit for servicemen and women and their dependents in that it's, uh, it's basically access is limited to them. And salary and fringe benefits of that sort are how agencies procure employees. That is how they attract and retain qualified personnel. And, in fact, agencies have drawn a distinction between benefits provided to employees and benefits provided to the entire it public. Say, it still isn't covered, you say, unless the government pays out cash. Right. I think that that would be the better view, but I think well, obviously the stronger argument was not made legislative history in that respect. Uh, what, what is this? There, you, you quote in your brief, I just want a little clarification. There's a committee report, the Senate report says that, quote, concessions contracts do not constitute contracts for the procurement of goods and services for the benefit of the government or otherwise. And, and there's something odd about that statement, but I got it out of ex — you quoted it. And that seems to be the legislative history of the Act, and uh, apparently it isn't. Where, what's, what's the status of that particular remark? No, those are both the, those are the committee reports for yeah. the 1998 Act. So, so it why isn't that a legislative history? Uh, oh, it is. It is. Like, Which says concessions contracts are not contracts. Oh, for I was addressing the, the legislative history of the CDA, not the 1998 Act. Well, isn't, aren't we concerned? Oh, the 1998 Act is which? That's the uh, — That is the uh, Act, the current concession authority, the current authority under which the National Park Service issues concession contracts. So what we have is in, in that, that was Act. an Act that said yeah, uh, they're, they're not uh, continuously renewed with the same That's provider. It, eliminated it, it was the, the Act that said uh, we're going to terminate these things. That's correct. When did the Park Service first install this — when did it first take this position? It wasn't just under the regulations, as I understand it. When did the Park Service take the position that concession contracts were not procurement contracts? The first time they took that position publicly was 1979 in a Board of Contract Appeals case, uh, Yosemite Park and Curry Company. Uh, the Court — the IBCA, rather, did not address it, though, because it was actually before the effective date of the CDA. And they took it res uh, specifically with respect to the CDA there. But traditionally, uh, although it's impossible because of uh, absence of institutional memory, uh, traditionally concessions contracts have not been viewed as procurement contracts by the National Park you, Service. You, you indicated that there's a stronger argument in some instances than in others for the fact that it's a concession 
a concession contract can be a procurement contract. Um, does that go back to our basic question about ripeness? So we don't know what we're involved with here. Or can we take these uh, contracts where I take it uh, they did involve the construction of facilities at national parks, et cetera, which does benefit the government in the long term? Well, to the extent that the Court thinks that the specific terms of concession contracts and what is accomplished under them affects the determination of whether or not they're procurements, um, I think that the Court would have some difficulty in saying authoritatively whether they all are or an unacceptably high portion of them are procurement contracts without having a better idea what is included with them. If I could But if it go on a case-by-case basis, then that would indicate the regulation is deficient because the regulation doesn't purport uh, — to, to use this, this kind of fine distinction. But still, it, it's something that could be addressed in as-applied challenges, where you could say, in my particular case where it requires me to build a lodge or whatever, this is a procurement contract. And under those circumstances, it would be very clear exactly what was required of the procurement contractor and they could, they could uh, of the concessions contractor, and they could determine whether or not that particular contract was a procurement. The regulation would then be invalid to that extent. Yes, but the Court has held, in, or as Court has indicated, in INS versus National Center for Immigrants' Rights, Babbitt versus Sweet Home, and cases like that, that, that merely because a regulation is invalid in some applications, it will not be invalidated on a facial basis. If I could just address Mr. Elwood, is there any place we could look to see how much prejudgment interest the Park Services had to pay each year? <laughs> Is it a big-ticket item? It's not a big-ticket item. The only three cases in which the, the CDA has been applied to uh, National Park concessions are the three uh, IBCA cases mentioned. And in two of those, the government wound up winning on the merits, so there was no prejudgment interest paid. So it's only in that R&R uh, Enterprises case that the government would have paid any uh, prejudgment interest in this case. If I could just go to uh, your example, Justice Kennedy, about the building of buildings in National Park lands. I believe that it is not a procurement for, for a variety of reasons. First, uh, just as a statistical matter, 78 percent of concessions contracts do not involve any capital improvements. And that is a very broad term. It's much broader than just structures. It's structures, unremovable property, and fixtures. But on the merits, uh, many concessions contractors have been required since the very beginning of, the, of, of concessions, 1872, uh, to require — they've been required to build their own buildings. And historically, that has not been considered something that the government gets. It doesn't get the benefit of those services because it enters the contracts not for purposes of getting a building, but because it wishes uh, to have concessioners provide services to park visitors. And in order to do that, it tolerates the building. The National Park Service doesn't want buildings in the parks. It wants nature in the parks. And it tolerates the buildings to the extent that they are used to provide visitor services. And I think this comes across in the way these are treated by the contract. Even though the government has a bare title in these buildings, in a very real sense, it doesn't buy them. Every concession who builds a building in the national parks under a concessions agreement will have a leasehold surrender interest equal to the construction cost of the building plus inflation minus depreciation. And they cannot be put out of that building by anyone until they are paid that leasehold surrender interest. That is, until the building essentially is bought. As long as a concessioner is operating out of that building, a concessioner will hold the leasehold surrender interest, not the government. Also, I think it's telling that the form contract indicates that if the concessioner ever leaves, ever abandons the building, ever that they have constructed, that the government can require them to knock it down and restore the site to its natural uh, its natural state. That's Section 9B of the standard contract and in the contract that's in the joint appendix. So again, that's an indication that they're not interested really in procuring the construction services. 
They're interested in authorizing a concessioner to provide uh, services to visitors to the national parks. Finally, I think it's noteworthy that uh, Congress obviously knew that concessioners would be building buildings under the 1998 Act, which was enacted against the backdrop of this regulation setting forth the Park Service's consistently held view that concessions contracts are not procurement contracts. And far from displacing that view, they actually seem to embrace it, both in the text of the Act and in the legislative history that Justice Breyer mentioned. As far as the text of the Act goes, I think it's telling that the different types of language they use for both the concession side of the House and the procurement side of the House. On the concession side, they use distinct language that I don't think you're going to find in any procurement statute anywhere. Instead of saying procure or purchase, they say they, the, the Park Service can authorize concessioners to provide services, and it even specifies that the services will not be provided to the government. It says they're provided to visitors, uh, which is obviously very different from procurement statutes, many of which specifically state that the services will be provi- provided to the agency. Maybe the Park Service wrote that portion of the committee report. No, that, Justice, Justice Scalia, that's the actual text of the statute. Ah, okay. And by contrast with that, the actual text of the procurement provisions of the uh, 1998, Section 5959, use typical procurement language and specify that the Park Service will be benefiting from it. It says that, uh, the con- that the service can enter into management consultant agreements, whereby management consultants provide services to assist the Secretary in administering the program. So it's a contrast both, I think, in both ways. Finally, one other thing that I think is telling is that Congress specifically provided that some of the most likely to uh, arise disputes under the Act, including specifically franchise-free disputes, which uh, I think people would think would would arise frequently, would be subject to mandatory arbitration. And if Congress had thought there was an administrative remedy for this under the CDA, I just don't think there would have been any need for them to provide for a mandatory arbitral remedy. Mr. Elwood, is the petitioner right in saying that that when the government sells goods, sells goods, that comes under the CDA? That is correct. Under 602A4, uh, when the government disposes of property that does not — this government government disposes of personal property, those sales are covered by the CDA. However, petitioner has never raised that theory uh, in this court — in any court. Those are not procurement contracts, are they? No, but they they don't purport to be. If you look at the CDA, the word procurement is always used in the clause for procurement of services, procurement of — of uh, construction repair, and, and that was tacked on at the end, uh, basically because GSA at the time subjected sales contracts to the same dispute clause that was problematic that, that procurement contracts were. But that's still, in order to get coverage under the CDA, under petitioner's theory, they still must be a procurement contract or must involve the procurement of services. If there are no further questions from the Court. Thank you, Mr. Elwood. Mr. Keller, you have two minutes remaining. <clears throat> Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Uh, the, complaint, the complaint in this case was filed <clears throat> under the authority of 28 U.S.C. 1491B. The Court will find that at page 13 of the Joint Appendix. And that, that statute provides for district court jurisdiction to adjudicate challenges to the terms of proposed government contracts. And I think if you look uh, at uh, paragraph 62 and 114 of the, joint append- uh, of the complaint, which is in the Joint Appendix, you'll see the allegations that were made in the complaint to fall within that provision of, uh, of Title 28. Um, as to the substance of the CDA claim, the government makes much of the fact that no, quote, government funds were used here, and I, I cannot uh, stress enough that that is a phrase that they've invented for the purposes of this case. 
It makes much of the fact that the concessioners receive monies here from the uh, visitors to the National Park, remit some of it to the NPS as a franchise fee, and keep the rest of it. But these contracts could just as easily have been structured so that the NPS got all of the money in the first instance, kept some of it as a franchise fee, and paid the rest of it back to the concessioners. And, in fact, some government concessions contracts are written that way. In that case, even the government, I think, would have to concede that government funds were used. We can't believe that the CDA, coverage of the CDA, these important procedural and substantive uh, protections, turns on such flimsy determinations as to who gets the money in the first instance. Uh, now, secondly, we've, we've already talked about the fact that so many services are being provided here that are for the use and benefit of the government as well as for the visitors of the national parks. But I also want to point out that the government is the sole beneficiary of the contractual provisions in virtually every uh, concessions contract requiring the construction, repair, and maintenance of facilities in the national parks. You know, if the Court will look, for example, at page 96 of the Joint Appendix, which is a, a provision of the Grand Canyon contract that's in the record, you'll see there that this contract, under this contract, the NPS is there procuring maintenance, repair, housekeeping and groundskeeping for all concessions facilities. It seems to us, if you look at the language of that, cons of that procurement and compare it to Section 3A3 of the CDA, which, which provides that CDA coverage for contracts for the procurement of construction, repair, or maintenance of real property, it's impossible to conclude, I think, that this procurement contract doesn't fall within the CDA. Thank you, Thank you. Mr. Geller. Uh, the Court wishes supplemental briefs on the issue of uh, ripeness. Simultaneous briefs due 3 p.m. Friday. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.